The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, as always, marveling over the pops of color in my garden, but also ruining the bamboo that needs to be pulled. Listeners, don't plant bamboo. It's highly invasive, spreads like crazy, and is impossible to remediate for. I have spent years chopping it back, pulling up the roots, pulling up more roots, burying it under cardboard, compost, leaves, trying to deny sunshine. I'm starting to dread weekends because I know I have to devote some time to bamboo maintenance when I'd rather be planting more native shrubs and plants. But anyway, enough about me. On with the show. Today's guest last visited us when we were in our inaugural season. Aside from being a dear friend to Republican.org, Dr. Ed Maybach is a distinguished university professor and director of George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication. He co-directs the Climate Change in the American Mind Polling Project, which some of you might think of as the Six Americas. He's also a principal investigator of Climate Matters, a climate reporting resource program that supports TV weathercasters as local climate educators. And he helps direct the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, an educational initiative that currently involves 37 national medical societies. It is adjacent to that last role that he has some interesting information to share with listeners on medical professionals as trusted messengers. So stay tuned. My conversation with Ed Maybach is coming up next. Welcome back, listeners. So excited to have our friend Ed Maybach back on the show after a three-year hiatus. Ed, welcome. Oh, thanks, Chelsea. So nice to, to be back with you. You came on when we were just a baby podcast. I think you were like episode five or six or something in that first season. So now we actually know a little bit about how to run a podcast. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, when I reached out to see if you wanted to be on the show, I always um, I'm you know a huge fan of the research that you do. Um, some of it are a lot of it in conjunction with the Yale Center of on climate change communication. And, you know, the six Americas is just to me, that is something that I use when I'm talking to people and we talk about climate denial and so forth. And I use that to show people like, it's not just the very small percentage of people that are dismissive of climate change. It's really those that are disengaged that we have to try to move, right? Because those are the people we have to convince that action is is um, important. And you have um, some interesting thoughts to share with us about credible messengers. Yeah, let me set it up, Chelsea, by saying that, um, you know, while the big picture, or since we've been doing these surveys, we call them the climate change in the American mind surveys, since the fall of 2008, and we, we conduct two of them every single year. So we've really had a nice, you know, 15 year running room now to, to, to keep our pulse on, uh, keep our finger on the pulse of what the public thinks and feels and is doing and would like to see us collectively do as a nation about climate change. And for almost all of that time, there's been this 
growing sense of public concern about climate change, um, such that the alarm segment, you know, in the Global Warming Six America, that group that are most concerned about it, I'm, I'm a member of that group, I would imagine you may be too, um, you know, the alarm segment has grown enormously. Back 10 years ago, only about one out of 10 Americans were alarmed, and, and now it's closer to three out of 10. So there's been almost a tripling in the number of alarmed uh, folks out there. But over the past couple of surveys, so the, over the past year and a half, really, there's been a, a small contraction, a small backsliding away from that high watermark of public concern about climate change. We don't really know what's going on. Um, you know, it might just be, frankly, pandemic fatigue or, or you know, concern about increasing uh, inflation or mm-hmm. and increasing mortgage rates or, or or all of the above. So we don't really know why there's been a small contraction that that runs at odds with that long term increase in the proportion of alarm. But but it's there and we're, we're trying to figure it out. And one of the ways that we're actually trying to do something about it, um, much in the way that that you and, and your colleagues at Republican are, are trying to do something about it, is, is by making sure that we are asking trusted voices in communities across America to help, you know, their, um, to help other members of their community un- better understand the realities of climate change and better understand the really good opportunities we have to do something about it. Opportunities that will be really good, not just for the climate, but but also good for people in communities across America. And one of those groups, now I'm finally coming around to answering your question, Chelsea, (laughs) one of those groups is my people. I'm a public health professional, first, foremost, and always. This is what I've done my whole professional life. And it's longer than I'd care to admit to your listeners, but it's a good long life. Um, and so for me to spend part of my time engaging with my people, fellow health professionals from around the country, it's just a real special joy for me because we all love to be with our people, right? But the reason why I'm spending a lot of my time doing it is it goes beyond the special joy that I have in engaging with my fellow health professionals. But it's because what we have learned from those climate change in the American Mind surveys I talked about. And what we've learned is that Americans trust, place a high degree of trust in what their doctors have to say about global warming. And this is where um, this is where it comes really close to what you and your listeners care about. While it's that the statement I just made, um, the, Amer- uh, the American people trust what their doctors have to say about global warming. It is especially true for conservative Americans. Mm-hmm. Our conservative brothers and sisters place what their place more trust in what their doctors have to say about global warming than anyone else, except for their friends and family. In other words, when we ask people in our polls, how much do you trust each of the following as a source of information about global warming among conservative Americans, friends and family come up number one mm-hmm. and their primary care doctor comes up as number two, more so than NASA, more so than, you know, any uh, any other government organization or any other science organization. And I think it has a lot to do with personal relationships we trust the people we trust the most are the people we know the best and we've we've learned to trust them they've earned our trust it's not just an assumed thing so why do conservative americans trust 
They're doctors more than climate scientists. It's because they know they're doctors. They trust them because they've learned to trust them. They don't know climate scientists. So this is a really special opportunity where my people and your people come together and where I think the two can have a really interesting conversation that will help conservative Americans really better understand that their skin in the game, their skin, and with regard to climate change is quite literally their skin. Uh, or, yeah. or maybe that's not quite literally, but uh, but figuratively, it's our health, the health of our children, the health of our parents, our neighbors, and our community members. Well, one thing that I have a couple of thoughts, and I'm going to ping pong around. The first thing that popped to mind is um, Ed, I just wrote a book that will be out next August, August 2024, um, called Glacial, about the um, the history of the politics of climate change. And one thing that came up again and again in the 80s was how focused lawmakers and, and the American public, well, the public everywhere, was about the depletion of the ozone layer. And part of that PR campaign, so to speak, built in was that the depleting ozone was going to could cause skin cancer, right? That the UV rays without the protection of the ozone layer could cause skin cancer. And even President Reagan, who was in office at the time, had had melanoma removed. And so he heard about this and that was compelling for him. And so we actually had a very direct health connection to what the scientists were saying was going to happen. And then that turned into a... Um, a sort of groundswell of support to act. And so between the time when the scientists first started to alert started to alert lawmakers or policymakers that something had to change to the time when the Montreal Protocol was signed, which started to phase down the use of um, chlorofluorocarbons, was a really short period of time. Now, we have been dealing with this climate change issue for decades, right? And so one thing that I sort of was internalizing as I was doing the research for this book was just we didn't have that in the beginning, right? When we first started to work on trying to find what the policy was to um, slow down the, the emissions of carbon dioxide, we didn't have a direct correlation between your health and climate change. But I feel like we do now, don't? I mean, I feel like with asthma, with um, or just um, risk, the risk of being in a sea, an area that has sea level rise, and then maybe you're going to have mold issues. I don't know. I feel like there is a much greater connection between climate change and health now or something that is more tangible than there might have been 20 years ago. Yeah, that is such a good um, analogy between, you know, dealing with the hole in the ozone layer and and essentially, you know, the Mon Montreal Protocol essentially banned the continued production of the CFCs that were the problem. It it. Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were, you know, all in on that. They they saw no problem with with banning something that the scientists had proven. And actually, well, I think they won a Nobel Prize for proving that uh, these CFCs were were thinning out the, uh, you know, the atmospheric uh, ozone layer. And so they said, well, let's do away with that because we have a better product. We have other things that we can use as refrigerants in our, you know, the, the display cases in our in our grocery stores and, and refrigerators in our homes and in our automobiles. So why not? Let's do this. And it's been a huge success, right? It's taken a couple of decades for the atmospheric ozone layer to, to begin to heal, but it has in fact begun to heal and it's it's demonstrably better off than it was when the protocol was signed. Um, back then, 
we didn't have we didn't have the incredible clean renewable energy technologies that we have today. Um, and that was really even the case 10 years ago. I mean, the, the, the economics of clean energy have improved so dramatically over the past 10 years. So now um, I am incredibly hopeful that, you know, we're going to move towards public policy decisions or, or status quo public policies that, that privilege fossil fuel production, which my health colleagues and I know is really a terrible threat to, to human health and well-being. Just even take climate change off the table. Mm-hmm. Fossil fuel production, uh, distribution, combustion, it's absolutely an anathema to human health and well-being, yeah. regardless of climate change. Air pollution, worldwide, air pollution is the leading cause of premature death, worse even than tobacco. Um, So, again, taking climate change off the table, me and my health professional colleagues, we should be, and many of us are, advocating for greatly accelerating the rate of of global decarbonization on health grounds alone. Um, But then there's also the added benefit of doing the right thing for our health will also do the right thing for our climate. And, And that, you know, those clean renewable energy sources are dollar for dollar cheaper than unsubsidized fossil fuel production. So it's just smart public policy to accelerate decarbonization as fast as we can, because doing that's going to be good for our health and good for our climate. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Speaking of talking, one thing I wanted to to just um, poke your brain about a little bit is if doctors are such trusted messengers, which I hear you saying that they are, are they talking about these issues with their patients? Because I think that's something that if it's not happening, how do we how do we spark that? How do we make that? How do we turn these trusted messengers into people that are actively messaging? Yeah, it's such a great question, Chelsea. Um, it wasn't very long ago that I myself was something of a skeptic about the value of trying of health professionals, clinical health professionals, ones who see patients talking about this issue in the exam room. Um, And the reason why I have something of a skeptic is because, um, you know, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, they're incredibly time pressured and increasingly more so with each passing decade. Um, And, you know, they're coming off a global pandemic where they were overworked and fatigued and right right. so you know there's the question of is it even feasible they've got so many things they need to do in that that six or eight or ten minutes that they have to spend with each patient so the feasibility is really an open question to me or was an open question to me i've actually been i'm a convert now and i'll tell you why in a moment um but you know in addition to the feasibility question there was also for me one of the reasons why another reason why i was a skeptic is there's the appropriateness question. It's like, okay, I just wasn't convinced that when I have my clothes off and my doctor's given me my annual exam, that that's really a good time for her to be talking to me about, about climate change and, and how it is a threat to my health. But I, I'm, a, as I said, I'm now a convert and I'll tell you why. A, a wonderful pediatrician in, in Madison, Wisconsin, his name's Andrew Lewandowski. Um, he heard me say that I'm something of a skeptic and, and he, he thought I had it all wrong. And so he actually used his own practice 
to prove to me that I had it all wrong, that there's no basis for skepticism. He wrote a 45 second, I'll just call it counseling statement, you know, a 45 second statement that 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 he uses to explain during well child visits. So not when the kid is sick and crying and miserable and the parents are worried, but during the well child visit, he adds a 45 second, he routinely now adds a 45 second additional educational counseling uh, statement into into the uh, into the session. And he evaluated for the first 250 times for the first 250 families where he added this into his repertoire. He then sent the little survey to those families at the end of the day and he asked them about it. Well, did, you know, what did you think about that? Did, did that, you know, did you think that was appropriate? Did you learn anything useful? You know, are you thinking about changing anything in your life in response to what I shared with you? And what he learned was that, it, you know, it's not the world's most elegant scientific study, but it, it it was a pretty darn good effort to test or to demonstrate that my sense of skepticism was unwarranted. And in fact, he approached once he had the answers and he proved to me that, in fact, his families responded really well to it. Um, even his conservative families, on average, responded really well to it. They they thought that it was interesting information that they hadn't heard before. It came from a trusted source, their child's doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the people said that they had that they had, in fact, or were in fact considering making some changes based on that information. So he invited me to work with him to write this paper, the the evaluation up and publish it in a journal. And so he and I and two other pediatricians, we published that about two years ago in the Journal of Climate Change and Health. It's uh, it's available open access. So anybody who wants to read it again, his name is Andrew Lewandowski. He's the first author. It's available to anybody open access, no charge. Um, And uh, so it has made me a convert. So I am coming back to your question. I do would like to see doctors bringing this into their clinical repertoire. Mm -hmm. But in addition, I I think doctors play other have other special opportunities to share what they know about how climate change is harming the health of of their patients and of other people in their community. And those other opportunities are things like writing op-eds to their local paper yeah. or calling into their local talk radio station or coming down to city hall or or the county seat when a, the county commission is uh is discussing, you know, policies of relevance. And it's really helpful when we have the trusted and caring voices of our local doctors weigh into those conversations because it makes it so much more concrete. I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, if just going back to my example with the gas powered um, leaf blowers, gas fueled leaf blowers, if we had a doctor in town and I'm going to go look for one who could say, you know, I've seen the studies and I've seen the research and I've sent this all to my um, town council and mayor and public works director and stuff. But if we had doctors testifying at our town meetings, talking to residents, right, and and talking to to some of the people that are skeptical or that are afraid of, you know, people are afraid of being told they can't use something, right? And I I think that could be really impactful. Um, So I'm going to steal that and use that here at the local level. But I do think that there is a role for doctors to play, as you were saying, in this, um, you know, it doesn't just have to be in the examination room where they already have so much limited time with patients, but being 
um, you know, part of their community and using their voice to speak out. I'd love to see what happens. I'd love to see how those numbers change. See if you can kind of, um, instead of the contraction, have a little bit more of an expansion after some uh, dedicated campaign to get doctors um, using their voices a little bit more on this. Yeah, and we, we've actually, because the surveys suggest that doctors and health, other health professionals have this special opportunity to engage with our, our conservative brothers and sisters and, and members of conservative members of our community, we've actually done some research, some communication research to test that premise. And so, for example, we, we, have re- we work with health professionals uh, to develop brief explanations of how climate change harms our health and how climate solutions create these incredible health benefits. And moreover, their health benefits that manifest very quickly and locally in the communities that take the actions. So in my community, if we shut down the coal-fired power plant, we actually get health, we get climate benefits worldwide over many decades, but we get health benefits immediately. And we get those health benefits primarily in our community where the power plant was. So we've tested the impact of this information on people, on sort of random samples of Americans across the political continuum. And our, it, what we found in our surveys that, that conservatives are particularly interested in hearing what health professionals have to say, it's true. They respond, conser- the conservative respondents to our research show even greater interest in the information than our liberal participants. And they show even more change of mind and change of heart in response to the information than our liberal participants. And in part, it's because, as, as you and I both know, in part, it's because, well, frankly, they their minds, many conservatives' minds haven't been particularly open to learning about global warming because they've heard so much negative information about the fact that this is not really a, a concern. But but they do keep their minds open when they hear health professionals talking about why it's a health concern and why climate action is also good for our health and and how those health benefits begin. We begin to enjoy those health benefits almost immediately and locally in our community as soon as we take those actions. So it's really this wonderful confluence of trusted messengers and messages that resonate, really do resonate both in terms of understanding the risks personally, and in terms of seeing benefits in in the solutions that people hadn't previously seen. Well, this reminds me of something that um, Senator Lindsey Graham said years ago when he was um, responding to the fact that many of his peers in the Republican Party were not embracing um, any uh, or accepting the science of climate change. And his quote was, um, if nine out of 10 doctors tell you that you have cancer, why are you going to believe the one that says you don't? And so while it's not a direct relation to what you're just saying, I I sort of, I can't get that out of my mind. And I think that that is true. Like you are, you do believe what the doctors tell you, right? You might get a second opinion or a third opinion, but you be- fundamentally, we believe what we're being told by doctors. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. And I'm going to see if my doctor talks about it next time I'm there. Maybe I'll ask her what she thinks. Yeah, do that. <laughs> my, my my doctor's all in too. Anything coming up that we should keep our eyes open for? Any reports or fun uh, information? Well, you know, for the first time uh, ever, 
at the upcoming global climate talks, you know, the, the UN yeah. conference yeah. of parties, COP28, which will be held in the UAE this year. For the first time ever, they're going to have a whole day of the, of the talks nego- uh, focused on human health. <gasps> and that's really exciting for those of us health professionals who we've been fighting for that for a long time, because for all the reasons I've already spoken to, we think the fact that that health voices have largely been excluded from the global climate talks was just a really a, a huge opportunity lost because when we talk about this as a climate issue or a plants, penguins, and polar bears issue, most people, it just, the personal relevance just doesn't make itself obvious to most people. But as I've already said, when we talk about, when we focus on the health issue, everybody's listening. So I'm so glad that the COP president um, has decided to focus an entire day on human health. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that it's going to help our nation's leaders become more aspirational in in achieving the goals that that they agreed to in the Paris Climate Agreement, because the sooner we achieve those goals, the healthier and happier we will all be. Well, Ed, I think that's a wonderful point to end on. I thank you for your time and for all your good research and for always being willing to chat with us and coming on the show. It's good to see you. And uh, Listeners, we had a little chat about bikes before we got started. I'm I'm going to talk to you offline, Ed, about getting getting on a bike. Fantastic! <laughs> I look forward to that. Uh, so, Price, did your horse win the Kentucky Derby? Did not. Ran second and third. Two ah. fills gave it up down the stretch. Man, what about I yours? Was- Well, I didn't actually have one horse. I went to a party where they did this crazy thing where there was like a grid and you put your name in the boxes and then they assigned your horse after. I never really knew what my horse was. I didn't win the pool, but it was fun watching. And, you know, I really enjoyed watching all the hats and the dresses almost as much as some of those horses are so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, they have been like coiffed and brushed and just, but they also look excited. And that was something that got me too. like, they know something big is about to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's an energy, you can see the energy. Um, so anyway, it was fun to watch. I had a friend who was there with her mom and it was like her mom's bucket list thing. And so that mm-hmm. was her Christmas gift was to take her to the Derby and they had a blast. So it was sort of fun watching, knowing that I knew people there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh. It's a fun experience. I think I've done six derbies, and the last one was wow. probably 2002, 2000, or, yeah, probably about 2002, 2003. I think Fusaichi Pegasus was the last winner, the one I went to. Heck, that may have been 2001. I'm really starting to date myself. But when they come out and they hit the track, you see them really react because none of the horses, none of the 20 horses usually – None, I mean, they're obviously three-year-olds, but they've never been in crowds like that. You know, derby prep races like the Florida Derby, Arkansas Derby, Bluegrass Stakes, or, you know, those have big crowds where they're at, but it is nothing like what they hear coming out on the track at Churchill Downs for the derby. So, yeah, yeah, usually you'll see some reaction, especially sometimes getting in the starting gate when a few of them get spooked. But it went off without a hitch, without any kind of delay on Saturday. I just wish wish Forte would have gotten to run. So sounds like coming to your neck of the woods in Baltimore, he might might be a showdown between Mage and Forte again. Well, stay tuned. And also just listeners who are like, what does this have to do with climate change? 
I will remind you, we had a guest season four, I believe, um, who talked about how race conditions are being um, impacted by climate change. So there is a connection. <laughs> yes, there is. And climate change is having effect on sports really from coast to coast, whether it be baseball, uh, football, uh, horse racing in this case. There, it. Uh, it is having its impact felt, um, and we can talk about that a little bit later some other time, maybe with some other guests uh, this season or next. But uh, to this week's episode and this week's guest, Ed Maybach, our good friend, it's always good to hear Ed back on Dr. Edward Maybach, um, our boss at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University, giving out all his outstanding data facts uh, and research that's backed up by just our countless hours of time that they spend putting towards it. Yeah, I, you know, I just think that we talk about this a lot, right, that the messenger matters. And so mm -hmm. that's why we exist, because we are the right messengers for a certain constituency of people. And that's why the environmental left exists, because they are, a cons you know, they appeal to a certain constituency. So everybody has their trusted messengers and this idea that doctors mm -hmm. be credible messengers on climate change, I just thought was really fascinating, especially for um, for more conservative leaning folks. So um, always a pleasure to talk to Ed and to hear the exciting research he's doing. And he's just he's so smart and he's also so enthusiastic about everything. It's just a joy to talk to him. Yeah, he's great. I mean, it, it the the doctors on the messenger part is so true because you know, like you hear Bob and many other people uh, in our world on the eco right make the analogy oftentimes using doctors, you know, God forbid, if you're diagnosed with cancer, let's say, you know, you have 50 doctors, 48 tell them, tell you, here's what you should do in terms of course of treatment. Then you've got two that might say, you know, the outlier that say, we'll do this. Who are you often going to go with? You're going to go with the 48. You know, because right. obviously they're you trust them. So it's it's, you know, an analogy that really carries a lot of weight. And obviously, Ed, uh, Dr. Maybach, you're backing it up and, and, and giving, you know, the messenger, the statistical uh, and the research behind it all. So I thought it was just uh, fantastic. Well, Price, um, it also makes me wonder, like, should I be talking to my doctor about things that might be impacting me that I haven't even thought about? So, yeah, really impactful message overall. And Ed is going to try to get me on a bike, like a real bike, not a Peloton bike, which I ride on the regular. So um, he's very enthusiastic about me taking up biking. Um, I think that's just because he takes it. He's one of those bikers that loves it so much that he wants everyone to do it. So stay tuned. Maybe maybe he will be the one to put me over the edge. I have a few other people working on me. And you have such great trails in and around the greater D.C. area. Yeah, They're the just... problem is you have to drive like you either have to ride your bike to them, which is dangerous because people I mean, the idea of riding a bike in traffic, you know how accident prone I am is scary. Or I have to get something to put it on my car and then drive my car to the spot. Anyway, these are details that can be worked out. <laughs> Easily. You can throw your bike in the car if your said car is big enough to put it in there to drive to the to the um, that's what we often do as a family. We got uh, we got some equipment put on the back of our van, so now we can tow, or I don't want to say tow, but now we can put the all four of our family bikes on the rack when we can go out as a family because we nice. where we live we do have to drive to a trail, so yeah, and we do it often. So new members, Price. Who do we have? New members: Susan K in New Jersey, Cassandra R in Arizona, Michael O in Colorado, 
Danita W. in Montana and Edward M. in New Hampshire, not the Edward M. this week's guest, but Edward M. in New Hampshire, who has decided to stand with us at Republican.org forward slash join. Take seconds. We appreciate all our new members, even those that we did not read off uh, this week. And while we're at it, let's just give you a shout to download, listen, but mostly subscribe to this podcast so you have it delivered to your smartphone. Uh, your iPad, wherever it is, whatever it is you listen to, wherever you are in the continental United States or around the globe, you can just search EcoRight Speaks and get it downloaded to uh, your device via Spotify, um, via Apple Podcasts. You can go to our website, republican.org forward slash podcast and listen to every episode right there, Chelsea. And if uh, you are an Apple Podcast user, please give us a rating. You know, we haven't had a rating in a while. We haven't had a ratings drive in a while. We try not to pester you too much, but it's so easy. You know, you have the Apple Podcasts app as I do on my phone. You click on the show and then there's a spot where you can, like if you scroll down, you can do a little like report. You can, I'm going to just give somebody five stars while I'm talking to you because I want to put my uh, walk the talk, talk the walk, walk the talk. So give us some love, show us some love. We appreciate. Um, I have realized recently that words of affirmation is one of my love languages. So give us some affirmation with those five stars. Absolutely. Please, please, please do that. A rating makes it easier for others to find our podcast and makes it more visible on all podcast platforms, especially Apple Podcasts. Chelsea, no, next week is in flux. Yeah, but, you know, rest assured, listeners, we'll bring you someone good. We will deliver as we deliver every single Tuesday here on the EcoRight Speaks. Until next week, Chels, we will talk to you then, and have a wonderful week. Happy Mother's Day to those who are mothers. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the EcoRight Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.